Well, howdy. Okay, okay, that's good. My name is Todd Berkey. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Grace. My normal day job is actually working with young adults, and so it's a ministry called Junction. Our young adults are single grad students and young professionals in the area, and God is doing some really incredible and beautiful things in and through this ministry. So if you happen to be here in this room and you are a grad student, young professional, and you're like, is there anybody like me who's wanting to follow Jesus? Come join us on a Thursday night. If you know somebody, come on out and join us on a Thursday night. And I want to acknowledge, I imagine every person in this room did not want to come here this morning and go, I want to hear an advertisement about Junction. So uh, we're not going to talk about Junction the rest of the time. That was it. We're going to talk about Jesus, and uh, hopefully as we look into his word, that we will find ourselves encouraged and challenged. And with that, we're going to be talking about prayer. We're in a four-week series Jacob kicked us off last week talking about how not to pray, looking at some examples of, of what not to do in praying. And this week we're going to look at how to pray, and we're going to be looking at a portion of the Lord's Prayer. Now, I've got to be honest that I have a shaky relationship with the Lord's Prayer in church. It stems from when I was a kid, our family moved around a lot, and we landed a new church, and it was always like, is it going to be trespasses or sins? You know, so you'd wait, forgive us, or, oh, you just had to wait. And so that was confusing for me. But as I got older, uh, I worked at a Christian camp, and we would do a church service on Sunday, and I was required that one morning to do the prayers, take prayer requests, and we would pray for, for the folks when they had different requests, and then we would transition into reciting the, the Lord's Prayer together. All I had to say was, please join me. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, literally, I had to remember that. But something happened, my brain just stopped working, and so I got up, I, I prayed what I was supposed to pray, and then I needed to transition, and I, and I, I blanked. And so I started going, holding my microphone, going, uh, now help us to pray. I mean, hear us to pray. Uh, uh, uh. And as I was backing up with every uh, there was a drum kit behind me that I eventually bumped into making a very loud noise, which flustered me even more. So I just was like, the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which funnily enough, people then started praying the Lord's Prayer. Afterwards, I got to meet several people who told me all about, it's okay, son. Let me just tell you the times that these people messed up, you know, in church in front of everybody else. So, shaky relationship. Hopefully, today, this morning, won't be so shaky as we look at the Lord's Prayer. Now, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 9 and 10, only two verses. And as you are turning to Matthew chapter 6, I, I just want to give us some context to make sure we're on the same page. Matthew chapter 6, it falls right between Matthew chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 5, okay? I spent a lot of time preparing that moment right there. But in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, it's probably titled in your Bible, The Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, Jesus' longest recorded teaching on a whole bunch of different topics. And I think sometimes we're just familiar, oh, Sermon on the Mount, that sounds great. But what Jesus is doing, he's speaking like a king. He is, he is doing king speech all the way throughout those three chapters. And what he's doing is, is he's letting people know, you want to know what life looks like in, in my kingdom. If you want to like, know what it looks like, what, what a good image bearer of God's kingdom looks and acts like, I'm going to tell you the normal rhythms 
of what it looks like to be in God's kingdom. And he's gonna speak and say things that are shocking. He's gonna say things that are incredibly surprising. And he's also gonna say some really offensive things, which is crazy at the time. Just for example, he's gonna basically say, your system right now doesn't work. He's gonna be very, very upfront. In Matthew chapter five, at verse 13, he says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how do you make it salty again? You can't. You've got to get rid of it. And the only way that salt loses its saltiness is when it's mixed with other ingredients. And so he's saying, your church leader, your leaders, your religious leaders have taken what God has said in the Old Testament. They've added things to it. They've mixed it. It's diluted. And what you are looking at is not the kingdom. And the only way to let you know what the kingdom is like is to tell you it's not this, and I'm going to tell you what it's like. That was surprising. And the other surprising thing is he begins, you drop down a little bit further in, in 21, and he starts saying, you've heard that the ancients told you you shall not murder. That's what you've heard. And then he says, but I say. And that's the king's speech. He's, te he's telling you, you've heard it said it's always about your actions, and all of a sudden he says, no, no, it's about your attitudes as well. It's not just about what you do on the outside, it's about on the inside as well. And, and I say, if you're even angry with your brother, if you begin to speak poorly about your brother, you are guilty and deserving of hell. Like, this is shocking, surprising, offensive words that Jesus is saying through Matthew 5 through 7. Now, he's not just sitting there and, and trying to offend people. What he's doing is he's saying, this is what normal rhythms of life look like in my kingdom. And it gives everybody a chance to go, how do I gauge my life? How am I doing in these things? Well, I'm not killing anybody, so I'm doing good. But I'm harboring some illness towards somebody, so maybe I'm not really imaging that kingdom very, very well. But more than that, it's not just how to gauge how much of an image bearer are we? It's actually a pathway for growth. Right after the whole anger thing, the very next verse in 23, he starts with therefore. Because God is looking at the heart and because anger and holding on to that is not great, therefore, if you're presenting your offering before the Lord and you realize somebody else has something against you, they might be mad at you for choices that you have done, a business deal that you've done, some way that you've treated them. You realize somebody else might be angry, not being a good image bearer of the kingdom because of you, leave your sacrifice and go towards them. And so he begins to say, life and rhythm of the kingdom is not just that you're not angry, but that you're actually aware of others and that you're, you're actually humble and recognizing like, oh, I did wrong, I offended that person, and then you're not just stationary and saying, well, if they come to me, I'll make things better, but otherwise they're okay. Or they should just be okay with it because you know they're easily offendable. It's not me, it's them. And so when we're presented with that, we have this gauge to go, how do I respond when maybe I've made a mistake? Do I just blame it on everybody else and not own my responsibility? Mm, maybe. That's the gauge, and I realized, man, I wanna grow my faith. Now he's presented this beautiful opportunity to go, you know what? What I said was kinda harsh. I think I might have offended. Let me just move towards this person in humility and ask for their forgiveness. So it's both a gauge and an opportunity for growth. One more little quick thing 
speaking about this, and maybe this will help clear things up. You're like, you're already over explaining things. That's fine, bear with me. Years ago, I had the opportunity to play college tennis, which was great, and so I got recruited by different schools. Now, if you'll think about these schools as different kingdoms, I would go on a recruiting trip and I would meet with the coach, and the coach would tell me, in this tennis kingdom, this is what we value, this is how we operate. The first one I went to, we value height. Everybody on my team is 6'2 or taller. That's not me. Went and met with another one, and, and he said, here in our tennis kingdom, we value international players. We, we just feel like how they approach the game is different than American players, and it makes us a better team, and I'm like, that's not me. And so where I ended up playing, they really, really valued fitness, conditioning. That was what they were all about. And they would be, you may not be the most talented player, but you will never run out of gas on the tennis court, you will always be able to keep up. And so we had a standard there for your conditioning, which was run a mile in 515 or less. Now I'd never run a mile that fast before in my life, but I thought I'm in pretty good shape. I'm also confused as a tennis player, if I don't get to the ball in five steps, like why do I need to run a mile? But that's what coach said, we value conditioning. So the first day we lined up, he says go, and I watched the rest of the team, boom, just take off. And I'm thinking, you gotta pace yourselves. Well, I finished about 5.52, 5.55, not near the 5.15 mark. So I was able to gauge my conditioning was lacking. It didn't line up with the values of that tennis kingdom. I didn't lose my scholarship. I, I didn't lose my position on the team. It just said, you need to grow to be a better image bearer of our program. And so I was able to gauge my conditioning, but also it grew my conditioning because I would have the opportunity every day to go out and run the mile, run some 400s, run 100 different sprints, hit the weight room, work on running through the walls, and eventually I got to see that time drop, drop, drop until it was under 515, and I became a better image bearer of that kingdom. And that's important for us to understand that as Jesus is mentioning these things, you're like, that's a lot of information for just the intro, and I understand, bear with me, we're gonna, we're gonna be okay. It's only two verses. But it's important as we look at Jesus says, this is how to pray, we may look and say, I don't pray that way. And as we see that disconnect, we might gauge and be like, oh, I'm a horrible person. There's no way that God would love me. There's, there's just no way. And you need to understand, just as I didn't meet that standard on the tennis team, it didn't lose my position. It just gave me an opportunity for growth. So as we look into this, if you're like, I don't pray that way, and you start feeling bad about that, let's just also understand it's an opportunity for growth. So you're already in your Bibles there to Matthew chapter six, verses nine and 10. Let's go ahead and, and read here. Jesus says this. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Familiar text. And I think sometimes we might miss some things with the familiarity, but we're gonna make three stops and we're gonna frame it around this sentence here that when we pray, remember the right person, the right time, and the right attitude. When we pray, kingdom prayer that lines up with the rhythms of, of God's kingdom, considers the right person, the right time, the right attitude. And just to forewarn you, we're gonna spend a whole lot of time on the first one, and the last will go very, very quickly. So if you're sitting there going, man, if that was first point, we're gonna have to skip 
lunch and wait for dinner. It's gonna be okay. We're, we're in this together. Let's talk about the right person. When we pray, who are we praying to? Who are we approaching? Do we even think about it or do we just say, you know what? I need or I want and God is my cosmic like vending machine. I need a new car, mine broke down, so uh, let's go here, L32. Oh, I really want a relationship, I need that. And uh, there, oh, there it is, B13, and we watch the little, and there's the relationship. Do we approach God as if he's a vending machine or some, some genie who's just gonna grant wishes? So we just come like, just give me this, would you give me this, would you give me this? Who are we actually coming to? And this is shocking what he says, and I think at least one of us in this room might have missed it. Who are we coming to? He says, our Father. Who are we coming to when we pray? Our Father. And this is amazing. Uh, just journey with me back in time in the Old Testament. Let's just, let's pick on Abram, right? The patriarch, the one who God says, come out, I'm gonna bless you all over the place, land, seed, blessing, and, and, and it's gonna be awesome, Abram, come on. And so Abraham, as he's walking, he has this conversation with the Lord who's just reminded him of the promise, and he says, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Let's jump forward from him to Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, a huge player, right, in the Old Testament, He's been sent by God to deliver the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and Pharaoh said, mm, let's increase their labor. And so everybody's upset. Moses is upset, and he comes and he talks to God, and what does he say? He says, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought harm on this people? <laughs> why did you even send me? Well, let's step even further on our timeline into the kings, King Hezekiah, a great king. The situation, he's surrounded by hundreds of thousands of Assyrians looking to conquer Jerusalem. They've already conquered the northern kingdom and they've conquered in his territory already and they're surrounding the city and they're mocking, saying There's, you stand no chance. And in that situation, this good king Hezekiah, he prays in this desperate time and, and what does he say? He prayed before the Lord and said, Lord, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, and it's a beautiful prayer. I encourage you, 2 Kings 19, uh, read that prayer and stand in awe. It's, it's awesome. But we just looked at a, a patriarch, a prophet, right? And a king. And how do they address their prayers? Lord God, Lord, Lord God of, of Israel. And Jesus says in my kingdom, he says something shocking, when you pray, our Father. That the readers, the hearers would be like, wait, what? This is incredible. And actually, if you were to track through the Gospel of Matthew and you look at Jesus' teaching and the number of times that he refers to God, not just as his own Father, but he says, your Father or our Father. If you were to look at the number of times that Jesus says that in the Gospel of Matthew, it's 20 times that he says it. 15 of those times are in the Sermon on the Mount. 15. It was shocking all the way through. What is he trying to communicate to the hearers about the normal rhythms of the kingdom of God is that you have a God who is relational. Father's an incredibly relational word. Now, as I think about that, I, 
I'm taken back in time to this very stage. Actually, literally, I was, I, was, I was right here, right here, 10 years ago, a little less than 10 years ago. And I was waiting, I was looking down this aisle, these same chairs, different people here. The doors opened wide, and as the doors opened wide, a woman in white starts walking towards me, and it's my bride, and I'm breathtaking. I'm like, she's amazing, and this is awesome. And she is flanked by either side with two boys who are going to become my children, Paxson and Preston. And as I sat there, I'm like, I am so excited. Like, this is amazing. For, for so long in my life, I just wanted to be a father. And now I have this opportunity. We have a picture of it. This was them coming down the aisle, standing right here. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. What a moment. I, I'm given the opportunity to be a father, a husband and father, a father who protects a father who provides, who loves, who invests, who encourages, who teaches. I taught the younger one. This is almost 10 years ago, so they're all taller than me now. But I taught the younger one how to snap. Just taught him how to snap. And every time he snaps, I'm like, I taught him that. I taught him their math facts. That was painful. But as they have grown, I've just desired this relationship with them and have had the opportunity to teach them so many things, how to navigate relationships. It doesn't mean they always are gonna do things well, but this is relationship that's ongoing, that's loving, that's protecting, that's providing, that's teaching. I know in this room that we have different father experiences. And I can tell you for, for me, from that moment when they came down, my desire has not changed. I wanna be a good, good father. That's what I want to be. And I have moments where I rock it. I have moments where I'm like, wow, that was some sweet fathering. But also, I've had moments where I'm like, what is wrong with you? You communicated poorly in that situation. You responded horribly. What's wrong with you? But it's not because my desire isn't there to be a good father. Why is that? It's because there's brokenness in me. And here's the reality. All of our fathers here on earth have brokenness in them as well. It doesn't matter whether you had a great father like I did or you had a father who was absent, wanted nothing to do with you, or somewhere in between. None of them are a perfect, perfect view of who God is because they all have lives that are marred by brokenness. They're all carrying past hurts that they don't know what to process with, and so a lot of times they end up coming out on you. But here's the reality. Our Father, our Heavenly Father, He is not marred by brokenness at all. He is perfect. There is nothing about Him that says, I have to make up or I'm distorted and broken in some area, and so I'm gonna take it out on a person this way. None of that. He is perfect. And with that perfection, that's who loves us. He is good. A great example, if this afternoon, if you're, you're sitting there like, what do I do in the rainy, cold time? Check out Luke 15, the prodigal son. I'm gonna move really quickly here. It's incredible. You get a glimpse of the perfect father. If you're not familiar with, with, the, with the parable, basically you've got the father and you've got two kids and the younger kid says, dad, give me what's mine. Didn't do anything to earn it. Give me what's yours that you're gonna give to me anyway. And then the kid takes off and says, I'm out of here. And he, and he runs to a far land. He says, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want any relationship with you at all. I'm gonna go take your resources. And I'm gonna spend them in the most horrendous way that doesn't look like you at all. Well, that's incredibly dishonoring in that culture and, and today. 
Children were to, to honor their fathers and mothers. They were to image them well. And he went and he just squandered it all. But when he came to his senses, he comes back, right? You, you know the story, he, he comes back. And what do we even learn about the father there? This father is incredibly relational, is not gonna force himself on his children. But you know that he wants the relationship, that he's waiting for any movement. Like, I'm not gonna force myself on you, but you turn and come to me. And what does he do? He sees them from far off and he sprints out there. And the kid is like, hey, I'm just, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I just wanna be your servant. And he has a hard time getting it out because the father has run and is hugging him and is kissing him. He's so excited. And then he does the, the most crazy thing of going, hey, servant, will you go get the robe, go get the ring, and go get sandals, all marks of sonship, because this son of mine was dead, and he is back. Go get them. He is mine. He is part of my family, always. Come on in, and he invites him. Come to the party. Come. He's inviting. Be close to me in the relationship. That father is gracious. He's loving. He's generous. Even the older brother doesn't want to come in. What does he do? He goes out, and he just invites, like, come. I want a relationship. Come. Come, our perfect father is so radically different than what any of us have ever experienced. When we pray, we're not coming to a vending machine or a genie. We are coming to our father who loves us perfectly. He is a relational God. But he's not just that. The prayer continues. Who is in heaven? Now, He's not saying he's far away, so you better get a long distance you know, calling plan that's great for not just out of this, this uh, country, but out of this galaxy. No, he's, he's saying he has authority over all. He is talking there's none who is stronger. There's none who is more powerful. Prime example of this years ago, it was popular when I was growing up. We didn't have as many video games, so we would play ping pong, that I am now told that it's cooler to call it table tennis. So we had a table tennis table, and uh, in San Antonio, I had a friend named Brooks Riley, and Brooks would come over, and he would beat me, and that made me mad. And so I sent Brooks home, and I went ahead, and I, as he went home, I took the ping pong table and folded up one end, and I went Forrest Gump style. I just was like out, just practicing, practicing, getting better and better, and I called him up the next day, Brooks, come back over, let's play, it's on. So Brooks shows up, and I destroy him. Now, you've heard, like, people say, my dad is stronger than your dad, my dad can beat up your dad. Well, Brooks went home and told his dad, like, hey, I lost to, to Todd, and his dad or something must have been felt like he was being taunted because later that day, Brooks's dad shows up at my house looking for my dad. You think your family's better than my family? Let's go. My dad's in the backyard mowing. He's like, what is going on? And so uh, my dad's like, okay, you wanna play ping pong? We'll play ping pong. And so he comes around to the garage and neither of us knew this. Brooks's dad pulls out like a carrying case. Zip. And he has multiple paddles of like, well, the humidity is this. Brooks's dad had been the Air Force champion of, of, like, he represented the Air Force in the military games, played against the champions of all the other armed forces and beat them all. So my dad got destroyed. Um, it was like, oh, but as a kid, you're like, come on, dad, come on. Our father is not like that. There is none who comes even close to his power. So not only does he love you incredibly, he has this incredible power when you look for protection and provision. But who else, how else is he described? It doesn't stop there. Hallowed be your name. 
Now, this, there's some complexity in here, and let's just kind of keep things simple. Uh, in the ancient Near East, your name and yourself, were they were united. There was no difference. And so to disrespect and not honor somebody's name was highly offensive. Um, God himself talks about that in Ezekiel. He's been talking and talking about Israel and how they have, have no regard for his name, which is you have no regard for me. And he says, kind of, let's just read here. In Ezekiel 36, 21, God is speaking. He says, but I had concern for my own holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake. It's not because you guys are awesome, Israel, that I'm gonna do anything. I'm about to act. I'm gonna do that for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. And I'm gonna do something so radically different. I'm gonna give you a new heart, a new spirit, because you cannot image bear me at all on your own. But when I give you a new heart and a new spirit, then you'll be able to be the image bearers that you were called to be. Jesus picks up on this in, in John chapter 28. After the triumphal entry, he says, praise, Father, glorify your name. Bring glory to yourself. It's part of this whole plan to bring the new heart and the new spirit. And a voice came out of heaven that says, oh, I've both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the name, holy be your name, it's holy be you. And he already is. Hallowed, holy, set apart, different. We need to understand that when we're coming before this loving father, this powerful father, he's different. He doesn't think like you do. He doesn't think like I do. He's not made in my image. He's radically different. And when we understand that, sometimes some of our confusion can go away. But as we get to also know him, we begin to be able to image him. Which, if you didn't realize this, that is the purpose of your life. If somebody ever asks you, what's the meaning of life, the purpose of life, I just encourage you to give them two words, image God. And it doesn't come from me. In Genesis chapter 127, when, when God is creating, let us create humankind in our own image. Purpose is they are to act like we are. Take what God is like and image it in the world that's down here. That is our created purpose. And that's really free and really cool because we can live on that at every single moment. In this situation, whether we live, walk from here and have a line at lunch and we're frustrated, how can I image God there? We can always live on purpose. But God is different. How do we image him? We have to know him. We know that he's different. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God is talking, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your ways thoughts. So when we pray, do we acknowledge who we're coming before? That he's relational, that he's powerful, that he's different. Prayer that marks the kingdom of God understands who we're coming before. And we're going to fly through these last two. You're like, good. Uh, the other thing that we, when we think about imaging God in our prayers is it's considering the right time. Your kingdom come. And this is fully looking forward. It's the certainty that Jesus knows that why he's there is to usher in God's kingdom, and it is going to happen. We studied Revelation not very long ago, and we watched the certainty with where everything is going. There is no stopping it. 
because God is most powerful. And you just think about the future. When you really just stop and think, uh, Revelation 21, two and following, and, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. When we're praying in the rhythms of the kingdom of God, we look at things through the light of eternity. And let me tell you, that brings peace. Um, come back to the kingdom thing with me for a moment. Remember, we had the tennis kingdom of height, the tennis kingdom of international players, and the tennis kingdom of fitness. Right now in the world, there are kingdoms that are battling. We have God's kingdom that is, that is sitting there, and there's a war from the enemy's kingdom. And really briefly, let me just tell you what those two kingdoms center around. God's kingdom says, it's about me, not me. It's about God himself, and you look at things through the lens of eternity, the enemy's kingdom, his thing is, what do we value over here? It's you. Whatever you want, your impulses, you just go. Everybody else is trying to restrict you. It is just freedom, whatever, and we focus on now. You have to have things now. And so these two kingdoms of God in eternity or myself in now, when we pray, are we looking at things through the light of eternity Years ago, I had the great opportunity to be an insurance claims adjuster. Let me tell you, if you ever want to really um, be beaten up throughout the course of a day, go be an auto claims adjuster. People just yell at you all the time. And I remember I was just really struggling. I didn't know enough. I just felt like I just couldn't do enough. And so I, I came home and I was having near panic attacks from this because I just wasn't good enough. And as I was walking and just trying to like express my heart to, to my father, I, I realized, Todd, just take a breath and step back in view of eternity. You're thinking only of just tomorrow. It's all gonna be okay. And there was such peace that came in. And then he reminded me, you've only been there two days, so of course you don't know everything, right? Um, but when we pray, do we consider things through the light of eternity or only here and now? And the third thing that, that, that he's telling us and he's showing and revealing that's kind of shocking is it's having the right attitude. And he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we rarely get glimpses into heaven, but the times that we do when there's order that, that goes on, it's all centered around him and it's all his will. You think back in the book of Job, right? The enemy shows up there. He has no authority except for what God allows him to do. And so it's sitting here in this attitude of, of your will be done. What I mean by this is that we have that attitude of trust. Because after all, God is an unbroken, perfect, loving father. There's no one stronger. He's different. He's set apart. He doesn't think or act like, like we do. His kingdom is going to come. It's unstoppable. So in light of that, we should have an attitude of trust that basically we give a preemptive yes. Who'd you say? Yes, whatever it is, Lord, I may not understand, I agree. We looked at this in our series in James, did we not? In James chapter one, six, he talks about in five, like if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask. But 
He must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And that word doubting has the idea of dividing, of considering that, okay, God, give me wisdom. And what you're gonna do is say, here's my dry erase board with all the other people's information and their advice. And I'm just gonna add yours to it. And I'm gonna sit back and I'm gonna judge. Mm, I like it or I don't like it. Mm, no, we can't have that attitude and expect wisdom. Instead, in light of the beauty of who he is and the relationship that we have with him, we give him a preemptive just Yes. Now, as we think about how we pray right now, we can sit there and gauge, like, am I, am I thinking about this God? Is that who I understand that I'm coming to? Do I celebrate that guy when I come to him? Do I really consider eternity? And do I always enter into with a, with a, a preemptive yes? Is, is that how I operate? And we might go like, mm, these are all pathways for growth. A real quick example A few years ago, I work with young adults, so you think 22 to 35-year-olds. Hey, there you go. And you think about not many that I know carry heavy health crisis. And yet we had a gal who served with us, and she started strong, and then uh, disease showed up, and her health began to decline, and things were not looking good at all. And it was very confusing to me. I don't understand. God, she loves you. She, she is telling other people about you on a regular basis. She just wants to know you. She images you. She has constant joy that radiates out of her. She has left a mark on so many different people in the ministry. You are a God who heals. You are a God who restores. Why would you not make her better? Come on, Lord, do this. And as I began to walk and talk, which I do with the Lord many times. I poured out my heart. And I, as I was pouring it out, it was also going, God, I know you to be a father. And I know you don't operate like I do. I'm really stuck here. Will I still call you good even if I don't get what I want? And not very far, literally a street from, from here, I could drive you to the place it just was, that was the battle of laying down the right attitude of, Lord, you're God and you're good. I will call you good no matter what, even if I don't understand. That was incredible growth for me. You're probably wondering what happened. She passed away. I had the opportunity to go up and, and be there for her funeral and, and speak. And one of the most incredible things that I still do not understand uh, her family, who were nominal at best, uh, they were interested by what I had to say about how she lived her life, and they wanted to know more, and a spark took off within the family, and all of a sudden, this group that was kind of blah about Jesus and blah about his kingdom, something shifted, and they began to see there's more to this life, and they began to live radically different, not because of me, but because of what God is doing in them, and he used what I didn't like somehow for his glory. So when I read the Revelation passage, I get really excited where there'll be no more death because that's wrong and it's unnatural, but that's a whole other sermon. But when we come and we pray, do we have an attitude of a preemptive yes? I will call you good no matter what. And I think this is a great about God. He doesn't ask us to go any place where he hasn't gone, right? You think about Jesus. If you were to, to flip ahead into Matthew 26, in verse 39, he's praying in the garden before he's going to be betrayed and crucified. 
and he's praying on his face and he says this, my father, if it's possible, let this cup, this crucifixion that's about to come, let it pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He comes back, checks on the disciples, they're sleeping, wakes them up, he goes back and prays again in 42. My father, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink from it, your will be done. He doesn't ask us to go to a place where he wasn't willing to go himself. And we know the outcome. We know that he went to the cross. And why did he go? Not because of his sin. He went because of my brokenness. He went because of your brokenness and because we stand no hope apart from him. And he joyfully went and endured the cross because of the joy set before him. And he paid the price to restore us, to bring us back into a relationship. And he invites us into that relationship. He doesn't ask us to give more money. He doesn't ask us to have better church attendance. He doesn't ask us to memorize more scripture. He asks us to simply trust him, to acknowledge he is a good father who knows that you're hurt he knows that you're broken and he knows that you need help and the only help is his son who's come and given his life and he says all you need to do to have this new life to come into my kingdom is say thank you thank you and like that my son could do that too new life begins to unfold and our position in his kingdom is secure even if our performance, even if we don't image bear perfectly, we're okay. Like my tennis example, I didn't get kicked off the team. He doesn't kick us out of the kingdom. We're given opportunities to grow as image bearers. So what do we do? How do we apply any of this stuff to our life? Well, when we pray, remember the right person, time, and attitude. What do we do? As the band comes back up here, I encourage you just pray. Pray a faith-growing, kingdom-aligned prayer. And what we do is, is we make sure we pray remembering the right person. He is Father. He's faithful. He's loving. He's truthful. He's good. I've listed five things up here. So maybe this week, you sit there and say, during my time of praying to him, I'm going to actually acknowledge who he is, one of those attributes a day. There's even a whoops in there, right? There's only five, and the week has seven days, so you could have two whoopses where you just missed it. Look at the verses, reflect on them, and just come and remember who you're coming before. And then I encourage you, as you begin to pray, no matter what it is that you're facing, challenge yourself to embrace the view, to consider it in light of eternity. And then really wrestle with just an attitude of a preemptive yes, that I'll trust you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this day. We thank you for the moments that we have together to gather and to look into your word. Father, we thank you that you are a father that our minds maybe can't fully comprehend. We thank you that there is no brokenness in you, Lord, and we thank you that you sent your son to repair and fix our brokenness. I pray for this week, Lord, no matter what we step into, that all of us, myself included, Lord, we would not be so quick to run ahead and just say, I want this, I need this, Lord, that instead we would pause and we would, we would be image bearers of your kingdom in our prayer life by remembering who you are, by looking at things through the lens of eternity and giving you a preemptive yes.